You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. So Andrew is going to share a message with us on Christ the King Sunday. He is many things. He serves on our capacity core team. He serves on our board. He is... As one of our worship leaders and songwriters, we've been singing his songs for a long time. He is an attorney and, you know, a, a theologian and a scholar in his own right. And I've been blessed by fr- a friendship with him and been nourished by his thoughts and perspective. And I'm really grateful that he's here to share them with you, too. So here's my homie, Andrew. Thanks, Johnny. Um, Okay, let me see here. Oh, does it work? Oh, there we go. So we have two passages from the, from the lectionary today. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read this one from Jeremiah? Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend to my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified." nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous savior. The next passage is from Colossians. Can I get a volunteer to read that too? May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power so that you uh, may have all in, uh, sorry, so that you may have all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of all the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of his darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, for through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
Thank you. Let's pray quickly. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So today is Christ the King Sunday. Um, (laughs) My mom does this weird thing. My mom does this thing that used to drive me nuts as a kid. Whenever she opens a book or when I gave her some, like she would be looking at what I was reading and she'd be like, what are you reading? And I'd hand it to her and she'd pick it up and she'd flip right to the back. Not the back cover, the back part of the book and just start reading from there. She'd read the back of the book first. Um, and it would drive me nuts. I would be like, why do you need to do that? And she would tell me that she wanted to know what the book was about. She does the, she does the same thing with movies. Uh, she'll tell me about a movie. She'll like, send me a link to the trailer. Or she'll does, start describing the plot. And I'll, be, and I'll ask her, you know, what, what did you actually think of this movie? And she'll tell me, like, well, I, ha- I haven't actually seen it. I've just been reading about it. She, she needs to know what a thing is about before she starts uh, reading it. It, it, it. it took me my entire childhood up until I think now to recognize or realize why she needs to do this. And it, it, my theory at the time, or my theory had been, and I'll expand on this more later, was that stories make my mom anxious. Um, she, it's not that she doesn't have the, it's not that she can't understand a story or that she doesn't have the imaginative capacity to understand it. It's that I think in some sense she feels these stories too deeply. So she needs to be rooted in some understanding of what's going on in order to get through it or else that anxiety just takes over for her. I used to think this was something unique to my mom that I didn't share, even though as I get older I realize that I'm much more like my parents than I recognize. But when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, I realized that I share the exact same anxiety that my mom does. I was saying this to my cell the other week, and it's that I used to check the daily numbers for case counts, deaths, infection rates, not just daily, but on an hourly basis. I used to just keep refreshing that page as if this new data would tell me something new about the situation. If I had a book that I could flip to the back of, I would do it in a heartbeat. I I wanted to have a grasp of the situation. I wanted to know what was happening and where it was going so I could have some kind of control over my life that would resolve some level of my anxiety. What I really wanted to know was the trajectory of things. In a lot of ways, that's still really what I want to know. I wanted to know how it was going to turn out. I wanted to read the last page. Um, typically, we, while we do follow the Revised Common Lectionary, we read one passage or another. The Revised Common Lectionary usually has an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. And depending on what we're going through, we might read one or the other. And I was thinking about which one to, f- to do for, for this message on Christ the King Sunday. And I realized that uh, it, it's not quite complete that what the lectionary is trying to teach us w- without both passages. Because what the passages do here is give us a trajectory. The first passage from Jeremiah talks about this idea of shepherds who are poorly shepherding God's people. Um, 
and the promise that God makes through the prophet that God will intervene, God's self will intervene and give his people a good shepherd, a righteous branch. The passage from Colossians shows us how the followers of Jesus in the first century interpreted this promise as Jesus coming, not just to restore the political fortunes of Judah or the people of Israel, but as an expression of God's fullness in the entire cosmos. So it's a really clear trajectory. There is a promise and the fulfillment of that promise to two really clear data points um, that the lectionary kind of highlights for us today. Oh, here's a picture of a scatter graph. A scatter graph of uh, COVID-19 deaths compared to the percent of neighborhood vaccinated. The thing about trajectories is that frequently they don't seem, they aren't as straightforward as what the lectionary gives us. You know, we don't just have two data points that have a straight line, two points, one line. We have a billion different points, you know, and they're all over the place. And it can be kind of hard to tell what exactly it is that the story is. You know, we imagine that if that line weren't there, you know, the data would still be the same. It would just be a lot harder to read. You wouldn't have a sense of what the trajectory is. So the lectionary is trying to be that line for us today. It's trying to be that straight line, saying that the through line of history, the point of the faith, is the supremacy of Christ, the idea of Christ the King. But how is that useful for us? You know, what's the point of Christ the King Sunday? Why do we observe this holiday? Because we don't observe every single holiday that the Western Church does. And Christ the King Sunday is actually kind of a recent phenomenon. It, was, it, it, was, uh, it, it started in the 20s, um, it kind of as a response to fascism in Europe. You know, it, that was even before Hitler. Uh, the idea of Christ the King Sunday um, is recent, but it's somehow relevant to us, especially as, as, as Mennonites who frequently reject the idea of kings. There's, there's a particular relevance to us. So before I talk about that, I do want to talk about why it is that it is useful and, and a couple of ways that it isn't useful. Because I think sometimes we hear Christ the king and we have a kind of allergic reaction to it or where it doesn't make sense to us. We don't know why it's relevant. We don't have kings. Uh, why do we, is, is the idea of Christ as king even useful to us? I think at, at, the, at the very worst, the idea of the supremacy of Christ uh, can be not useful because it becomes co-opted by governments, for instance, to, to commit the worst atrocities and, and justify the worst human impulses. Um, the idea, for instance, that God is already supreme and God picked the, you know, the, the king of England or something, or Spain or, or whatever, uh, and therefore saying that Christ is king just becomes another way to justify state power. Or becomes just another way to justify the, state, the status quo. A week ago, I was at my cousin's wedding in New York City uh, at uh, Long Island Taiwanese Church. And the first thing you see when you walk in is a picture of brown-haired white Jesus 
which I thought was hilarious because they couldn't even make him black-haired white Jesus. You know, they couldn't even give us that. Just a little bit of, uh, just, it, ha- it had to be explicitly brown-haired Nordic white Jesus. And then you walk into the hallway and there's another picture of brown-haired white Jesus. Um, so in that way, so to speak to that context, you know, Christ is white, Christ is king, white is king. You know, white supremacy co-ops Christ as king. We confuse, we can confuse the now with the not yet. We can, we can lose the sense of the trajectory and, and the idea that Christ as king can be an excuse to adhere to the status quo now and justify complacency. Um, I think a similar way that the idea is abused is if we think of the trajectory between the now and the not yet as kind of an inevitable straight line. The trajectory indicates the direction of things, but it doesn't always predict the next data point. Um, And that can lead us in different kind of directions. Uh, For instance, uh, the world is gonna get warmer anyway, so what's the point of doing anything? What's the point of reusing or recycling? Or, you know, COVID is going to become endemic anyway, ultimately, so what's the point of any kind of predictions. Why not just let it do what it does? And it can work for positive things too, you know, when we think the trajectory is straightforward, when we think we can rely on the trajectory to just kind of predict the future in that way. You know, uh, for instance, we we went from the abolition of slavery to Jim Crow to a black president. Things are just going to get better and better and we don't really have to do anything. It's inevitable. That's the trajectory. You know, so the trajectory can work against us in a, in a lot of different ways. It can, it can trick us into complacency. And I want to emphasize that it's easy to fall into that kind of thinking because we're always trying to predict the future to resolve our own anxieties. We're always trying to use this idea of the trajectory to, to plan ahead in that way. You know, two points, one straight line. Um, But, I mean, if there's one thing that I learned from obsessing over data points at the height of the pandemic, it's that, you know, there's very little you can learn when you're right in the middle of a thing. Frequently, what you need is time, distance. Sometimes you don't know how much time you need, how much perspective you'll need in order to put something into context, in order to see that there actually was a trajectory. I can see this, you know, and a lot of times with my own life where I look back and I, and I realize that I was moving in a certain direction, but I couldn't see it at the time. Or, you know, if you want to pull God into this, maybe God was moving me in a particular direction. I still think that the idea that Christ is king can actually soothe our anxieties about the world. Um, not by making us comfortable with the status quo and telling us that things can never change, Uh, And not by giving us kind of a step-by-step map of what's going to happen as if the story of Scripture is just a a step-by-step guide to the end of the world in the way that some people think it is. Um, But I think it's important to recognize that even in the story of Scripture, the trajectory is rarely clear. Um, The passage from Jeremiah that we looked at, for instance, is lamenting, let go back to Jeremiah, is lamenting the fall of Judah to the Babylonians. 
in the seventh century, but that's not even, it's 600 years between this passage and the birth of Jesus. Jeremiah predicts a savior, and after that is just 600 years of defeat after defeat. It's Babylon, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then Jesus, and then Jerusalem is burnt to the ground. For people expecting the kind of political salvation that Jeremiah is predicting here, they never, they never get it. The story of Jesus that we tell in our faith is the idea of a savior that doesn't restore the fortunes of Israel or inaugurate a political kingdom, but a savior that's crucified by the state and then rises from the dead and in doing that inaugurates an entirely new way of being. It's completely unpredictable as a story. It doesn't work as a trajectory, as an easily predictable trajectory. And to some extent, that's one of the delights of our faith, this idea that the movement of God is unpredictable, that God resists these easily definable trajectories. I do think, as I said, that the idea that Christ is king can still be a, be a way to soothe our anxieties despite the fact that it doesn't comfort us about the status quo and it doesn't tell us what's happening next. And it's the same wisdom that I think I now realize that my mom had in reading the end of the book first. Because when she was telling that she wanted to know what the book was about, um, she wasn't necessarily trying to get rid of the tension that happens with following along with the story. What she was really trying to do is get a sense of the purpose of the book. She was trying to figure out what the book is literally about, and by doing that, root herself in that knowledge and understand the rest of the book from that lens. Um, and oftentimes in storytelling, it is the kind of end of the book that, that is what the book is about. It builds up to that point. It, it climaxes at that, and, and, and you get a sense of what this author is really talking about. You know, Brian and I talk about Game of Thrones a lot, or a decent amount, more than two people who hate Game of Thrones should, I guess. <laughs> and one of the things we talk about is like, we don't know what this is about because the ending hasn't been written yet and the ending of the TV show is very bad. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but we're not sure what it's about. Um, so the idea that Christ is king works in the same way or can work in the same way. It's a way to root ourselves in this idea so we don't lose the plot where we're in the, when we're in the middle of it, when we can't really see it, when the data points are everywhere. Christ the king, the supremacy of Christ is ultimately a statement of resistance. It's a way to remind ourselves of something that's true about the universe, even when we can't quite tell what the trajectory is. And that truth, I think, is, is this. It's, it's the idea that the one in charge, uh, the one for whom and through all things were made, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, is somebody who understands us in our human suffering, is a colonized laborer who was lynched by the state, that this is the king, who rejected violence even to the point of dying and inaugurated a way of living that rejects death and rejects violence and is pulling all things to himself. 
that has fixed the trajectory of the universe to his supremacy. I'm just going to put Colossians up there just because the passage is so beautiful. Uh, this can be useful, for instance, politically. Just, it can be useful in a lot of ways, but let me touch on how it's useful politically. Acknowledging Christ as king is a political act. And I don't mean it's a political act in, in the... In the, in the that it was, I'm not, I don't mean that it's a, like it was a political act in the time of the Romans because they said Caesar is Lord and saying Jesus is Lord is subversive. Like that's true and that's all well and good. But I mean that it's actually a political act now because if Christ is king, it means that these oppressive systems and these laws and ways of being that are unjust are not just unjust, but they're illegal, they're illegitimate. It gives us that urgency. It means rulers that abuse their power in that way are illegitimate. It gives us that license. It gives us the permission and urgency to dismantle oppressive systems and disobey unjust laws. Just as an example of the way that this could work is from um, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine. An unjust law is no law at all. And he goes on to talk about the difference between unjust laws and how, and the, how you can kind of distinguish between the two of them. But Dr. King's point is really just a, is a summary of a kind of uh, legal theory called natural law. It's the idea that what is legal is not just what's commanded by the authority. What's legal is what, that which aligns with things that we know to be true. And as Christians, the thing that we know to be true is that Christ is king. The story of our faith is a story of a world in conflict with the just and liberating power of God through Jesus, who somehow changed a fundamental part of that calculus, who's infused the entire universe with his liberating presence, you know, like a candle that you put inside a clay vessel. And, and if you look closely enough, you can see the light through the cracks. And it's through our faith that we believe there are more cracks all the time. It can also be useful for us, you know, cosmically, personally. Things that feel not right to us, we can acknowledge feel not right because they, don't, they haven't submitted themselves to the rightful and just rule of Christ the King. Things like disease, things like death, things that just feel we have a revulsion to them. And we can say that it's right for us to be revolted by them because they're in opposition to something that's true and just. And ultimately, they're going to be, they're going to be submitted under the rule of Christ the King. So I think that's important that Christ the King, this idea, this doctrine, needs to be a statement of resistance. Uh, and it only works in opposition to these unjust things. It's, it's not an excuse for us to just kind of sit down and shut up. The difficult part of this for most people, uh, and definitely for me, isn't why we would believe that Christ is king. It's how to. Uh, because believing that Christ 
that in all Christ all things are created through him and, and for him, uh, it, it's empowering and it's good and it, it gives urgency to our necessary work. Um, but how can we have faith in an idea like this when the brokenness of the world is what we see most of the time? You know, Christ might be the beating heart of the, of the universe. Could Jesus, the Christ the King might be the pulse that runs through the universe, but it's, it's not the pulse that we see most of the time. You know, it's the, it's the muscle and the bone of the world. I've been thinking, uh, last week, as I said, I, w- I went to my cousin's wedding in Queens. Um, and on the way home, my mom guilted us into stopping my, my grandparents' house to say, bye, to say hi to them. Um, my grandfather had a stroke about 10 years ago. And after he had that stroke, he was, he's never really been the same. Before then, he was a really funny, vibrant, smart person. Uh, he, he, uh, he was a really fast walker. Um, he was a pastor for his whole life. And then he retired and painted for a few years, just, you know, enjoyed his retirement, and then he had a stroke. And after that, it was hard for him to talk, hard for him to form sentences, hard for him to get around, um, hard for him to form memories. Every time Amy and I visit, I have to reintroduce Amy to him. Um, He confuses different family members. You know, he used to be really articulate, and now most of what he says is that his feet, his feet hurt. You know, he'll just yell in Taiwanese, Wakai, my, my feet hurt. He'll just say that over and over again um, until it becomes a kind of background noise when I visit my grandparents' house. I know, I know something fundamental about my grandfather. I know who he is. I know that he's, you know, a, a funny, vibrant, intelligent, loving person. But that's not what I see most of the time. Um, and one of the things that makes me especially sad is that this kind of needy, childlike, kind of wailing version of my grandfather is really the only one that Amy's ever met. By the time we started dating, he, was, he already had the stroke. You know, he's, he's been like this for most of my adult life. So last week when I visited New York for my cousin's wedding, my, uh, as I said, I, I, I stopped by to say hi to them before we came back to Philly, and he was... He was sitting in a chair in the back room um, while his aides attended to him, and he was, he was uh, we were kind of standing there, and he was watching him interact with his aides. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, we were, I was reintroducing him to Amy again. Um, and Amy said, why don't, you, why don't you get closer to him? Why don't you get closer to him? And I realized how that I was standing far away from him. I... I'm often standing far away from him. I realize that about myself. I think the thing that I struggle with is that I'm afraid of being disappointed. You know, I'm afraid that I'll extend myself to him and he won't recognize me or I'll get a reminder of, of how much I've lost. So yeah, I was standing, I was standing away from him. Um, and I think I, I, oftentimes I use that as an excuse not to interact with him. Um, but Amy said, you know, why don't, get, why don't you get closer to him? 
So I, I got closer to him, and I told him that we were leaving, you know, we were going back, to, going back home, which is in Philly, that I'd be back in a couple of weeks for Thanksgiving, uh, and I hugged him. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I felt, I felt his, his, his strong arm around my shoulder as he pulled me close, and he kissed my cheek, and I felt the, the roughness of his stubble on my cheek. You know, and, and all of there was this, it's just, uh, he was sitting there one instant and in the next instant he was there again. He was really there, like, like I was 10 years old. Um, it was really unexpected. I think the idea that Christ is king is similar. We know something fundamental about a broken universe, something that doesn't seem to predict its, doesn't seem to express itself on a predictable day-to-day basis. We hold to this thing that we know by faith, despite the fact that we might go long stretches without seeing any of it at all. It's hard to have faith, sometimes impossible. Um, But what I've been thinking about this week is that advice that Amy gave me, which was to get closer. I was afraid of getting closer, of being disappointed. I often am. But sometimes the best way to have faith is to extend ourselves in ways where it could be rewarded or it could be disappointing. It's to get closer, to put yourselves in those situations. It could mean putting yourself in places where the beauty of God can show itself through the world around you. It could mean doing things that might seem impossible in our fight against injustice, where honestly sometimes it seems that only the miraculous can bring about this idea that Christ is king. It could mean letting yourself rest, because if Christ is king, the work is done. It doesn't depend on you. You can rest in that knowledge. I don't have a good ending to this. <laughs> that's it. That's all I've got. Uh, let's pray. I guess that's the ending. <laughs> God, thank you for bringing us here on this Christ the King Sunday. We remember your kingship. We ask that your presence be with us and you remind us of you in whom all things are made, through all things, before all things. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.